electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome back to CNBC's special coverage of markets and turmoil, by the way. I'm Kelly Evans. The market took off during that event earlier as Treasury Secretary Mnuchin detailed some plans to combat the economic slowdown from the pandemic. And he was pretty forceful in his language. The Dow is up about 1,000 points. Uh, We're currently up 625, another 1,000-point-plus swing today. Uh, Also take a quick look at WTI crude, which is now back towards $28 a barrel. It has reversed lower after the president, towards the end of that event, did suggest that further travel restrictions in the U.S. uh, may be be coming. Kayla Tausche has been monitoring this event for us and uh, joins us now with a recap of, of many, many big details, big announcements, Kayla, that we just heard at the White House. Kelly, no question, it is the most vigorous briefing that we have heard yet from the White House as they sought to unveil medical recommendations and these financial moves to bolster confidence in the American health care system and the economy. The biggest news came from the Treasury Secretary, Steven Mnuchin, announcing that the Fed is authorized to purchase up to a trillion dollars in short-term financing, that Americans who file their taxes can defer payments up to a million dollars, and that the administration now supports direct payments being made to American households. The secretary saying that it's likely this will be higher than the $1,000 price tag that has been discussed on Capitol Hill and that it will be means tested so that this money doesn't go to millionaires. Here's the Treasury secretary in his own words. We've heard from many people and the president has said we can consider this. The payroll tax holiday would get people money over the next six to eight months. We're looking at sending checks to Americans immediately. And what we've heard from hardworking Americans, many companies have now shut down, whether it's bars or restaurants. Americans need cash now and the president wants to get cash now. And I mean now in the next two weeks. The payroll tax, he said, wouldn't hit Americans' bottom line for six to eight months. President Trump said he still wants to find some way to do some type of payroll tax cut, but that he has authorized the secretary to go forward with these direct payments. The secretary is on Capitol Hill discussing this third tranche of stimulus uh, with Republican senators. They're at a lunch right now discussing this, and the Republican side of the aisle has been warming to the idea of these direct payments because that payroll tax cut would not benefit workers who had been laid off or workers who are in the gig economy. It is clear, though, as the White House proposes this new $850 billion stimulus package, that the industries who are requesting relief from the White House as part of this is just growing. President Trump at that briefing said that he met with fast food executives earlier today, encouraged them to do more takeout and pickup orders and to stop dining in. He said that he will be meeting with tourism and industrial suppliers later today. And he mentioned that Boeing and GE are among the companies who could see relief. Yeah, there was a ton of news there, Kayla. And I think what happens with the restaurants is going to be super critical, you know, whether they're allowed to stay open, uh, whether that decision is made uh, state by state, county by county even. But we appreciate it for now. Kayla, thanks. Uh, Kayla Tausche with a recap of everything that we did just here. Let's get down to Bob Bassani, who's at the New York Stock Exchange, with a little bit more on uh, this rally that, you know, we're we're drifting back a little bit, Bob, but uh, still a, a rare break here in the selling pressure. 
Yeah, less volume, but still an enormously wide trading range. Just take a look at the averages right now. Just on the S&P 500, our low, we were negative at one point, 23.67. Our high, 25.53. That's a 180-point swing in the S&P 500. So, yes, a little less volume, a little less feeling of, uh, 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 of active trading and, and panic selling, but still a remarkable trading range that we're seeing. In terms of these sectors, it's still very defensive. We've got a rally, but it's very defensive still. Utility Consumer staples and healthcare really are the leadership group. Tech is holding up fairly well. Banks still not contributing an awful lot to this. Uh, there are a few new highs, and we keep talking about these small numbers of consumer names that keep hitting uh, up there. Clorox, General Mills, and Kroger's. These are all 52-week highs here. I get asked a lot about, wait, we're talking about massive assistance to Boeing, right? We're talking about massive assistance to the airlines. Wait a minute. Why aren't these stocks up today? And I think the problem is a lot of people down here remember the 2008 financial crisis and the fact that a lot of the equity in the companies that were bailed out got either dramatically reduced or in some cases even wiped out. I think that may be a little bit of a, a memory overhang here for that rally. Finally, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin reiterating what he told CNBC on Friday. They're going to keep the markets open. We believe in keeping the markets open. Curiously, he made an offhanded comment that they may be open to shorter trading hours. Nothing else besides that. And certainly nobody else I've talked to has supported that particular idea. Guys, back to you. Yeah, I caught that too, Bob. But it was an interesting no, but I think a lot will depend on how the markets keep trading. Today, it's a little different story. Bob, thanks. Bob Bassani for us. Okay. We have some breaking news on the auto industry. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau. Phil, what's going on? Kelly, the UAW is calling on the big three automakers to close their plants for the next two weeks. And that is a decision that may be reached when uh, the big three CEOs, who are all part of a task force along with the UAW, have a meeting tonight. Uh, in that meeting, they're going to discuss, obviously, what's happening with the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, the UAW says this is part of a process of beginning a, a, what would be a systematic or normal shutdown of operations, as opposed to just saying, that's it, everybody get out of this plant. So what you have is the UAW saying, look, given the outbreak, and we've seen what's happened in Europe with a number of the auto plants already shutting down because governments are saying, you're not going to work, maybe it's time for that to happen here in the United States. And again, at this point, we'll find out more when the CEOs of the big three, they hold it. There's a coronavirus task force that they're on. They're going to be meeting tonight with the UAW. We will probably have some type of a decision shortly after that. Well, it sounds like the union is saying that the automakers are not making the right moves in order to keep their employees safe. No, no, safe, no, no, no. I wouldn't a, read into that, Kelly. I wouldn't read issue. into that. No, they have a contentious relationship at times. This is more a case where the UAW is saying, look, the train is coming down the track. Everybody sees what's happened in Europe, and it's probably going to happen here in the United States. We've already seen isolated cases in different auto plants or different facilities. And when that's happened, they have had the person leave the facility. They've done a deep cleaning. Um, and it hasn't risen to the point where the public health officials have said, shut this plant down. What the UAW is saying here is, we know what's happening. We know what's coming. Are, are we going to sit there and wait until we have an outbreak at a plant? Or are we going to be more thoughtful about this and close it down for two weeks. Not to mention if you have any any hiccup in demand, because again, we spoke to a, a bank executive yesterday about this who said dealer uh, customers of his were seeing a slowdown in, in traffic. But let me, Phil, since we have you here, we just heard uh, some potentially important news from the president regarding Boeing. Just want to quickly ask you about. Um, he said when asked about the potential for, I've, I don't know if he used the term bailout per se, uh, but when it came to supporting right. Boeing, he was very, very clear. He said, this company is important. We, you know, we're going to do everything we can to protect right. it. This is a, you know, a great company, an important one, you know, and so forth. 
any any idea about what kind of uh, of support we're talking about? Well, it, it probably will mirror what we are seeing the airlines asking for. And remember, the airlines are asking for $50 billion. Now, I don't have a price tag in terms of what Boeing is asking for for the aviation industry overall. It's not just for Boeing. Some of that would be for Boeing, but a lot of it would also be for suppliers. So they want to make sure that the supply chain doesn't break down, essentially, is what they're, they're talking about here. So it would likely be in the form of potentially some immediate grants, as well as some loan guarantees, and then potentially some tax relief. That's what the airlines are asking for separately on their own. What Boeing is saying is, look, put a part of a big package here, airlines, aviation companies, manufacturers, the supply chain, put it all into one big package. Yeah, the airports themselves, I saw that they're saying yeah. you know, they're, they're going to face a hit, too. Okay, Phil, thanks. Good to see you. you Phil LeBeau is in Chicago for us today. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, oil is falling in the session now below $29 a barrel. This came after the president in that news conference said he might consider limiting more travel. And this was after crude yesterday closed at the lowest level since 2016. Brian Sullivan is with me now on the news line. Uh, Brian, of course, you have been following the twists and turns of this oil story very closely. Uh, are you surprised that his, you know, sort of ruminating about possible travel curbs would have this big of an effect? No, not at all. I mean, we use 20 million barrels of oil a day. About half of that is used for transportation. Most of us just driving around in our cars. I mean, just look at some of the traffic patterns in this area, Seattle and others. They have fallen off a cliff. I mean, you know, just anecdotally, Kelly driving home every night at the same time on the turnpike. I mean, oh, I could yeah. walk down the turnpike uh, right now. So it's no surprise the world is oversupplied. And by the way, uh, the Saudis are going to, further oversupply the market. They want to keep pumping and selling more oil. You know, it was interesting. We spoke with the American Petroleum Institute yesterday, and uh, the comment was that gasoline demand right now has actually ticked up, uh, Brian, because people have had their flights canceled. So if you have to go get your kid from college, you know, to something, something like that, you don't really have a choice. But they it did indicate they expect that demand uh, to continue to drop, which to me, again, as, as we've said, the roads around here are already pretty empty. Uh, I can't imagine what that might look like with a few more weeks' time. Gas- gasoline demand is your local grocery store. Okay, everybody's driving around buying stuff right now. We know that. So there's going to be that short-term spike. But let's be clear, gas prices are going to fall. Jet fuel costs, one of the few good news things about the airlines right now. Last time I checked, we're at a buck twenty-five a gallon. New York Harbor traded. They were $2 a gallon for jet fuel at the beginning of the year. The big headline here, Kelly, is that the Saudis are going to raise production. In fact, they indicated last night they may max out production at 13 million barrels a day. Wow. Now, the Saudis were producing about 9.8 million. They're talking about going to 13 in a world that's already overcrowded. People I'm talking to saying they're already undercutting the Russians in pricing in Egypt and in some of the Baltic states that are huge Russia customers. They're basically like, you know, <laughs> we're, it's like the old sort of crazy Eddie. We're going to undercut your pricing no matter how low you go. Uh, Exxon saying they're going to cut spending. Yep. going to cut spending. A uh, lot of going on in the energy market. No, and I'm glad you mentioned the uh, action there in Exxon and Hess, which the market seems to be liking. Uh, so maybe the U.S. is going to take those barrels out that Saudi's putting in. But, Brian, we'll catch up with you again soon on that. We appreciate it. Yeah, I'll see you tonight at 5 o'clock on Fast Money. All right, Brian Sullivan. Fast Money tonight at 5, just like he said. Now, will the latest moves by the White House and the Fed be enough to keep the economy going and spark a turnaround in these markets? Joining me is Paul Christopher. He's head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. And Shri Kumar is president of Shri Kumar Global Strategies. So it's good to have you both here. Um, Thank Paul, you. you know, 
I, I hesitate to ask, but I, I'm, I'm going to anyway, uh, whether today's announcements from the Fed and the White House and the trading activity we're seeing so far suggests uh, a bottoming out of this horrible sell-off that we've had. Uh, too soon to tell that. You really need to see other factors come in, like especially a flattening in the infection curve, principally that. Uh, you also need to see the risk premiums on stocks get to a point where people start to actually buy for more than one day in a row. Uh, we're not quite there yet, and we just need more information on how the virus will spread across the United States. So still, still too soon to, to check on that. And, Paul, when you talk about flattening the curve, you're saying we need a diminishing in the number of new coronavirus cases that the U.S. announces every day, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Shri, let me bring you in. Um, <laughs> With a, I have to give you a major kudos. I have to, I have to bow, to, bow to Shri Kumar in this one because when you said the 10-year was going to 1% and below, it seemed crazy, and, and here we are, and that now we're struggling to, to get back above. Um, what happens with the 10-year now, and what's been the impact of all of these incredible moves by the Fed lately? Good to be with you, Kelly. And to begin with, the 10-year yield, I see this going all the way down to zero. And the question is, when does it happen? And why does it happen? My expectation is that while the measures announced today by the Federal Reserve to support the commercial paper market and by the president and Secretary Mnuchin in terms of supporting the economy are long overdue. It is much better that it happened today than not happen at all. But that is not going to prevent a recession. I've been looking for a recession to begin mid-year even before the coronavirus issues came about. Uh, and I've said that on your program, Kelly. As a result of the most recent developments, my expectation is that we already are in a recession. And that is not yet discounted in equity prices or in the bond yields. And those are the reasons why I think the correction in equities are going to continue and the bond yields are going to keep going down as okay. far as the Federal Reserve Shri, is concerned. Before you, before you go down that path, let me just ask you, you know, look, the market's basically down 30 percent peak to trough and the 10 year bottomed out at 35 basis points. And you're still saying a recession isn't yet priced in? That is correct. I think the recession is not yet priced in. Let's look at why I'm saying that. Uh, Dr. Fauci, whom I listen to you very listen to very closely, said that there is going to be this acceleration of the uh, uh, spread of the crisis, the coronavirus, for the next three weeks or so. So let's assume for a second that it crests in the next three to four weeks. Then you have an increase, but at a diminishing rate. In mm -hmm. other words, what called the second derivative is negative. That means this thing goes on for a few more weeks and that in turn brings more, uh, the, more of the economy, more shops, more airlines, everything to a halt. Okay. And that is not priced in. And that is why I think equities will go down further as also bond yields, Kelly. Paul, do you want to venture out uh, into that territory as well? I mean, what is, what is different living through this experience is to see the market and the economy both declining together at the same time. You know, in, in other words, it's not that anticipatory feel that we had going into the financial crisis. This one, Paul, it feels as though, you know, the declines are happening simultaneously, and perhaps that's why they're sharper on the equity side. Well, well, it's, it's pretty clear how the, the disease progressed in China and then more recently in South Korea. And, and we think that investors are pricing that, and they're seeing it happen in Europe, which is now the epicenter of the disease. 
And we're seeing that pricing in of, of exactly that sort of in, increasing rate of infection and then a flattening out in the rate of infection. We're seeing, we think the market's pricing that in, and we think the markets are correctly anticipating that that will have negative economic impact. And we do believe there will be a very high likelihood of a recession at mid-year, but we don't think it's going to be on the order of what we saw in 2008. You have the banking system in much better shape, household finances in much better shape. So it's more but it will be a, it will be a sharp it will be a sharp decline in the middle of the year. Do you think it's priced in at these levels, Paul? We think yeah, we think the market is in a position now because of what they've seen investors in China, South Korea, and Europe. We th- we do think investors okay. are in a position to price that in at Shri, least at least I, mostly there. I, I, final question to you, Shri. I'll let you respond to that and also make the point about the Fed you were going to make a moment ago. Uh, the, well, the point about the Fed is that they have come out in terms of support of the commercial paper market, which is, I think, very good, very positive. But on the other hand, they wasted a lot of bullets in terms of cutting interest rates first by 50 basis points and then again by another 100 basis points that absolutely achieved nothing. So what needs to be done is a more focused approach in terms of what gets done, Kelly, and in terms of supporting where it goes. The last point I would make is the Fed is repeating the problems of 2008. We cut the bank interest income to zero for the retired people and the low income groups who do not participate in the equity market. That in turn curbed consumption spending and we are repeating that same process again. So you'd have them do all the emergency measures but leave rates at one or two percent? Exactly. That doesn't matter. So let the retired person, let the wage earner get his or her interest income at a decent level rather than that's already gone down to zero. Okay. We're going to have more of this discussion uh, with a couple more guests this hour. Gentlemen, thanks. We really appreciate it today. Shri Kumar and Paul Christopher talking about these markets. Uh, Meantime, as I mentioned, the other big policy move did come from the Federal Reserve today. So we had the fiscal side and the central bank, which announced it will help companies that are having a hard time getting short-term funding through the commercial paper market. Let's bring in Steve Leisman, who's got all the details on this move. Steve, a move people had been more or less demanding for the last 48 hours. Yeah, let me just caution you, uh, Kelly, as my mother might say, don't count your chickens. We don't have the fiscal side yet. We have commentary that it's coming, but we'll count those chickens when they actually arrive or the checks in the mailbox. But the Fed did do this. Uh, Look, all morning, all day yesterday, even after the Fed uh, announced those emergency measures Sunday night, I was hearing that the credit markets were trading very badly. One person told me the commercial paper market is shut. And there was a lot of hue and cry from throughout the fixed income and the credit markets for the Fed to step in and do this. And indeed, they did essentially uh, dusting off the uh, commercial paper funding facility from the 2008 crisis. There were two moves today. Uh, First, they announced the CPFF, uh, and they also did an additional $500 billion of overnight repo. It's 121. So that operation will be taking place in about 10 minutes. So apparently there's still additional need for the Fed to step in into that market. The commercial paper facility is a little different. It comes with $10 billion of backing from the Treasury. So credit backing for the New York Fed to take in this commercial paper, which is really short-term unsecured credit that a lot of companies use to fund their liabilities. They may fund their inventories, things like that. It's always less than 90 days, this paper, but it's absolutely essential for the functioning of the market. Uh, The Fed will be taking high-quality paper, and a little bit unclear just yet 
um, what they're going to be doing with lower quality paper, which may be an issue as some companies' balance sheets deteriorate through this crisis. Um, there was also some talk, some criticism out there about how much the Federal Reserve charged for this. They charged 200 basis points over the overnight index swaps, swaps, swap, swap index. So, or, um, there was, that was exactly what they did last time, but they didn't have the Treasury backup. So the question is, could the Fed have been a little more aggressive in taking on risk here? Hmm. Uh, but in any event, that's been the case. It steadied the stock market. We'll see what's happening in the Treasury market by the end of the day, Kelly. Yeah, and we're going to talk uh, more about this right now. Steve, thanks so much. Steve Leisman with the Fed's latest moves there. Uh, the Fed and the White House announcing a slew of new proposals to help businesses and consumers across the country during this crisis. And like Steve said, the final details will be laid out later tonight and in the weeks ahead. But this latest proposal includes a series of tax payment deferrals and sending checks directly to American households. With me now is Steve Odlin. He's CEO and president of the Conference Board and former CEO and chairman of Office Depot and AutoZone. Steve, let's start with the household piece of this because you guys obviously track consumer confidence quite closely. We just heard Secretary Mnuchin very clearly say checks are coming immediately. He said within the next two weeks. How big of an impact do you think that'll have? Yeah, I'm not sure. Consumer confidence is critically important here. And we're, you know, we're working on two scenarios. One is that this carries through April and then everything gets back and normalizes. The other is that it carries through the summer. The critical factor in consumer confidence is jobs. And how do I as a consumer feel about the safety of my job and the continuation of those wages? If I'm confident about that, we know the consumer spending will continue. We know that that's critical for uh, the economic recovery from this situation. But if layoffs start to happen, because these things continue to, uh, to be uh, deferred into the summer, then all bets are off. And, you know, then it's, it's likely that we will have a recession. We did a, an informal poll of our members uh, last week, uh, several dozen of our members, and they are in the optimistic mode that none of them have done layoffs. Uh, very few of them have backed off hiring. So uh, I think we still are in the mode where we could save this thing but we need to prevent layoffs. Right. And Marriott this morning announced some furloughs. Uh, obviously, companies that have seen their business dry up are, are trying to find some way of not necessarily laying people off. But uh, so this next step, here we have it. So let's turn to the business side of this announcement, which is meant to prevent, like you're saying, these layoffs to try to help companies keep going. What could make the biggest difference there? Well, you know, you have to look at these companies that are on the bubble, right? So you've got about $700 billion worth of triple B minus debt. What happened in the financial crisis is that S&P and Moody's downgraded them immediately. All those companies lost their financing. They had to refinance at ABLs if they could get it at all. It was a disaster. They had to then hoard cash. It, you know, so it, it created a liquidity crisis, um, you know, through the economy. We've got to take care of those companies, obviously the people who are on the bubble, but we've got, to, we've got to take care of those companies that are on the bubble so that we don't trigger these kinds of layoffs. And so I'm not sure about the $1,000 check uh, strategy. Well, I think what I would be doing is trying to take care of those companies and trying to prevent those layoffs. Right. Kelly. And so in that case, moves like deferring taxes or getting some loan relief, what you're actually saying is that we should have the credit uh, rating agencies I don't know, suspend maybe any ratings moves on, on companies for the next 60 days or something like that in order so you don't trigger this cascade of hoarding cash, you know, seeing uh, they're being downgraded and so forth. Yeah, I don't know if you can do that legally, but I think the point here is if 
if, if the government is willing to do direct financing or stand behind these companies, particularly mm. in industries, I mean, yeah. we could bank up every airline in the world, you know, every travel company and so forth. Everything that's out of home is going to get affected here. By the way, there are a lot of positives in this, too. It's a stock picker's dream. You know, all the in-home things, food, grocers, um, entertainment, Amazon, Netflix, HBO, all of those companies will benefit. But I think in the, in the long run here, it will totally depend on how many people we keep working and we keep wages going yep. so that consumer confidence stays high. And that's an important nuance that if there's a government backstop, the, the agencies themselves may not downgrade uh, to the extent that they would have. All right, Steve, a lot of good concepts there. That we always appreciate. Thank you, sir. Okay, thank you. Steve Odlin from the conference board. Now, a potential breakthrough on a coronavirus drug today. This is important stuff. Let's get right to it. The biotech sector is sharply higher overall because Regeneron said it aims to have a potential COVID-19 drug ready for clinical trials by early summer. Let's get right to Meg Terrell for all the details on this now. Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, it was just two weeks ago on your show that Regeneron CEO Len Schleifer laid out the company's original timeline, which was to have hundreds of thousands of doses of a potential medicine ready for testing by the end of summer. Well, the news today is that they aim to be able to start human clinical trials a couple months sooner than that. Now, this is an approach that could be both protective against coronavirus infection and which could treat the infection. And it's been called one of the most important potential tools against COVID-19 by people like former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Now, Regeneron's chief scientific officer, Dr. Georgian Kopoulos, telling me the pace of their work is meeting even their own most optimistic timelines. But he does caution, of course, this is biology. It's not always predictable. And the medicine still needs to be proven safe and effective in clinical trials before it's used. And Kelly, of course, they are not the only company working in this space. Johnson & Johnson is also uh, looking for potential vaccines and new drugs. And joining us now is Dr. Paul Stoffels, J&J's research chief on the CNBC Newsline. Dr. Stoffels, it is great to have you with us. And tell us about the work you're doing on a potential vaccine. We spoke with you at the end of January. You'd already been working for a couple weeks. How is the work going so far? Well, uh, Mel, thank you for um, bringing me in. Uh, the timelines on this are the, we're making significant progress and very, very fast. As I told you, by the end of March, we'll probably will have the candidate vaccine to, uh, to upscale and to start working on the preclinical work to get it into the clinic. Um, at the moment, we are working on challenge models in animals to see whether we can prove in a proof of concept, figure it out whether a vaccine could work in the challenge model in animals. And then uh, the first step is the selection of a mo of vaccine by the end of March and then starting clinical trials after the, the, the challenge model, which probably will work out by the summer. We will be able to start clinical trials somewhere um, in early November. Um, um, I, in parallel, we'll start upscaling as soon as we have made the selection of the vaccine in order to have large quantities available uh, early next year. So that is uh, the current timeline, as I indicated earlier. And I think we stay with that and we make very good progress at this moment. Wow. And so that's even faster than I think you had uh, even told us a couple months ago, potentially starting uh, human clinical trials in early November. You know, originally you'd been saying it could you know, take a year and you're hoping by the end of the year. So, so that's really encouraging to hear. I wonder if you could help us understand how J&J's approach differs from the messenger RNA approach we've heard from Moderna and the NIH and also Pfizer today with BioNTech uh, just announcing a partnership. You know, Moderna is already starting human clinical trials that is going so incredibly fast. Just tell us about how your approach differs. 
Yeah, the approach differs too. There is, the, of course, the time to clinical trials or there is the time to get a real vaccine into the market. And there we can build on our existing platform. Uh, we have... Uh, we have worked with the same platform, the same vaccine uh, platform vector in HIV, in Zika, in RSV, and more recently in Ebola. And we have um, vaccinated with, in those fields now more than 50,000 people, shown that the vaccine is safe and that we have the proof of concept in animals now further into the clinic. And at the same time, in parallel, we have, uh, we have worked on upscaling, where we have the manufacturing sites ready to go, as well as the cell line, which can produce up to millions of vaccines. And so we can plug in the vaccine into an existing system, and that allows us to go very fast with very good information. And by now, we know every hour, every day in this planning is already fixed until the, the, the product for, uh, will come hopefully early next year available, the first, uh, the first batches for use in humans. Kelly? And Meg, thanks. Uh, my question is, for people who have been exposed to coronavirus, can they get it again? Um, it's not clear. Normally, if you're exposed to a virus, you make the antibodies, you have the cellular immunity for the long term. Uh, it might be temporary protection, and you probably, like with influenza, need another uh, a vaccine later on again, or you can get reinfected with a slightly different uh, virus. So that all needs to be still studied. But you should assume that if you have now corona, that you should not be able to get it a second time, although I don't have the scientific data for that to uh, tell you. But it's a logic biological principle. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Stoffels, it's Meg Terrell again. I wanted to ask you also about your efforts to find a potential drug for the novel coronavirus. I think J&J said yesterday it does not look like HIV drugs uh, will make sense to treat COVID-19. Tell us about that and also the work you're doing to screen antiviral uh, libraries of compounds and how soon we could potentially see something there. Yeah, there is some news on the antivirals for HIV, especially the protease inhibitors and for our drug Persista. But uh, we have not found the evidence yet that that works, and we stay very uh, close communication with the scientific community about that. Um, there is no evidence in the clinic. There is no evidence preclinically or even from the inter interface, the interaction of the, 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 the drug with the virus or the receptors on the virus. So we don't think that will work, and un unless that is proven, people should not use yes, uh, medicine for uh, Persista for this indication. Now, on the other hand, screening of drugs. Um, Fifteen years ago, when we when the war SARS, uh, our company already made a screening system to get going on making a medicine. And we could reactivate that cell line now with the Wuhan virus and put it into, uh, into a high-throughput phenotypic screening in collaboration with the university in Leuven, where they have a BSL-4 screening facility. That allows now to do in high-throughput all the drugs in the market, and they could Hopefully, some of the drugs which currently are in the market, whether it are antivirals or other types of medicines, could have a direct antiviral effect. And following that, phase three, phase two, phase one drugs, those are currently already in the clinic, um, could be tested to make sure that if any of those has activity, they could go as fast as possible um, to patients, but it's it's using the logic that the drug has to be already in a certain clinical stage to be able to be used in a very short time. And that is in collaboration 
between uh, many pharmaceutical companies. It's not Johnson & Johnson uh, with support of the U.S. government, the European, and also the Gates Foundation is involved in that to make sure that we mobilize all pharmaceuticals as well as biotech companies to screen their drugs on, act, on activity. Well, Dr. Stoffels, we look forward to staying in touch with you on these developments. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Kelly, back to you. Meg, we greatly appreciate you bringing that to us and all the reporting you're doing. That's our Meg Terrell. And don't forget to tune in to Mad Money tonight. Regeneron CEO will be speaking with Jim Cramer at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Regeneron up about 10% today. Uh, Moderna and J&J up about 5%. And stocks are rallying pretty much across the board after the worst day for the Dow and the S&P since 1987. Remember, we dropped 13% on the bell yesterday. Here you can see the comeback it's a little bit of a comeback. The Dow's up 630 points or 3%. The Nasdaq, at least, is up a little more than 4%. And it's been a volatile session again, about a 1,400-point swing between the highs and the lows. Within the Dow, let's take a look at some of the components. Boeing and United Technologies are the worst performers right now. Uh, Boeing, as you can see here, is down about 4%. This despite the president assuring the public uh, about an hour ago that he will look to support Boeing uh, if he can there. The other laggards, United Tech down about 4%, even Disney down about 2% today. In terms of sectors leading the way today, utilities and consumer staples by far uh, heading higher. Energy is the only sector lower. Utilities up 10%, consumer staples up 6%. Uh, but there's energy down 2%, along with WTI crude today, which is nearing $28 a barrel just over that level right now. Uh, this after talk of some further travel restrictions in the U.S., nothing concrete yet. Also, as uh, our Brian Sullivan pointed out top of the hour, Saudi talking about pumping uh, nearly 13 million barrels a day, which would be a huge increase from what they're doing right now. And finally, some all-time highs for you in the S&P 500. A few names are up there. Yesterday, we didn't see that at all. First time since the 90s. Today, we've got Clorox, Citrix, and WEC Energy. The cruise lines, though, not part of that story. They are falling again. Norwegian, Royal Caribbean, and Carnival all deep in the red today. Uh, Carnival is down nearly 13%. With the markets overall responding pretty positively to fiscal stimulus talk today, the Fed may be breathing a sigh of relief here. Can they take a back seat now? And is there even any more they could do if they needed to? Joining me now is David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. David, it is good to see you. And, and the one thing I keep hearing people say, and understandably, is that the Fed is out of bullets here. Are they or aren't they? Uh, I would say they're almost out of bullets. Remember, there were a couple of things they did during the crisis that they have not yet done. One is something called the Term Asset uh, Lending Facility, or TALF. And what that was was they took uh, asset-backed securities that were used to, to basically back uh, consumer loans. That's something they could do again. They'll probably need some more capital from the Treasury to do that. Um, and, of course, they haven't put capital into the banks, but the banks don't appear to need it, and they don't have any money for that. So I would say they're almost out of bullets. It's why it's so important and so useful that the White House and the Congress are talking about a big fiscal stimulus. Right. And Sri Kumar just made an interesting point. I don't know if you caught it, but he said he liked all the liquidity measures the Fed was taking, but thought it would have been better if they left rates up at 1% or 2% for the sake of the borrowers who depend on that kind of income, you know, low income, he said, you know, some of the older populations. Is there could there be a case for that? Uh, look, it's always true that there are winners and losers when the Fed cuts interest rates. That's not unique to the crisis. It's bad for savers. Good for um, good for borrowers. Um, I don't think it makes any sense, though. At this time, the Fed is the first responder. They had to do everything they could. The benefits of cutting rates to borrowers, people who have adjustable rate loans and stuff like that, seem to me far exceed the costs. 
Plus, I think it was, despite the market's immediate reaction, a real confidence boost that the Fed was on top of things. I think also when the Fed, the Fed knows that when rates are so close to zero, it's important to move big and move soon rather than to wait. So I disagree with Sri Kumar. Well, and to your point about them being the first responder, something that I wonder is once you have the fiscal piece of this coming into place, which may include direct checks and I mean, the host of other measures we've heard today, would the Fed start to unwind some of this? Because this is a very different downturn from the Great Recession when that was followed by a long period of you know financial repression, so to speak. If we have a, a sharp downturn and a, a sharp recovery, that could be a challenge for them as well to unwind some of this, right? I think we should be so lucky that that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's very easy to turn off these facilities like the commercial paper funding facility. And they've pretty much said they're not going to raise rates for a long time uh, until the economy's healthy again. Uh, I think that the risks of moving too prematurely to cut off support will exceed the benefits. And I expect them to be very patient. You know, yeah, if we're really lucky and this thing is shorter than we expect and inflation goes above their target, well, that's an easy problem to deal with. I'm not, not the one I'm worrying about right now. Yeah, absolutely. All right, David, thanks. It's good to see you. Appreciate You're it very welcome. much. David Wessel of the Brookings Institution. Now let's get to the very latest on the coronavirus pandemic. We go to Sue Herrera for that. Sue? Oh, we'll go to Sue in just a moment, in fact. Uh, in the meantime, let's check back in uh, with what's happening in the retail sector, which is particularly hard hit. We've seen it in the market, of course. We've seen it in the announcements of store closures. This says the number of confirmed coronavirus cases continues to grow. More and more are announcing previous store closures being extended throughout the country. How about L Brands closing its Victoria's Secret and Bath & Body Works stores in the U.S. and Canada through March 29th? Canada Goose is shutting its doors in North America and Europe until at least March 31st, and the CEO is foregoing his salary for at least the next three months. And then just this afternoon, Apple saying it'll now keep all of its stores outside of greater China closed until further notice instead of reopening at the end of the month. Again, its China stores will remain open. Loop Venture estimates they account for about 8% of total revenue in a given quarter. Over the past month, all three of these stocks are down big, with L Brands and Canada Goose losing more than half their value. So for more on what these closures mean for the industry, I'm joined by Sam Poser. He's a retail analyst at Susquehanna Research. And Mickey Chata is vice president and senior retail analyst at Moody's Investor Service. Uh, Sam, let me just start with you in terms of the equities. Bob Bassani suggested earlier that people are concerned that they might be taking bailout money and that that could imply a, a total uh, loss uh, for equity holders. What's the worst case scenario and what's priced in right now? Oh, goodness. I mean, I don't think we know what's priced in because it keeps changing moment by moment. Um, but what I do believe is that given, you know, what's happening out there, the uncertainty of it all, um, the stores that have closed the retailers that have closed their stores or brands that have closed their retail locations are making the only choice possible. And those that keep their stores open are at far greater risk of long-term uh, problems. Uh, what do you mean by no that, Sam? What's the risk no of keeping There's no customers out shopping. If one of your employees happens to get sick or get somebody else sick, this thing goes on. The, this, uh, the coronavirus, the impact of the coronavirus virus continues. So I think it's, I think that those retailers or brands that um, stay open uh, hoping for potential um, short-term sales gains are going to get hurt in the long term. And those that are have decided to close the stores and give up potential short-term sales that are likely not come anyway, um, 
will be far better positioned in the long term to do it. It's, it's, okay. it's sort of a greater good story as far as I'm concerned. So, Mickey, let me bring you in on that. If stores end up closing, uh, kind of doing the Apple approach, closing for the indefinite future, what will that mean for their viability? Well, I think the uh, issue here is the demand shock that's, that's going to create. We're already seeing uh, curfews, quarantines, uh, social distancing, et cetera. You add store closures to that. Most of these store closures, the companies are, are, are saying that they're going to pay their employees even if their stores are closed. So that means that they're actually paying their actually money out and mm-hmm. nothing coming in in terms of sales. And so when you look at the lower end of the retailers that have already been struggling uh, because their liquidity is weak or they have some operational execution issues, they don't have the scale, they can't compete. Uh, you know, even prior to the coronavirus issues, there were a lot of retailers that were going through a, a whole slew of problems. Yeah. This just exacerbates that problem where they have inventory, they can't sell it. That creates issues on working capital, uh, liquidity uh, for these weaker players. We're hearing that a lot of the weaker players, a lot of the players are now drawing down on their revolving credit facilities yeah. so they have some, some, uh, some cushion on cash balances on the balance sheet. So this is, this is going to be a, a big deal for those retailers that are weak already. Right, and we were just talking uh, with Steve Odlin about what role the credit agencies might play in exacerbating this, but to your point... You know, there's a certain responsibility in, in separating the weaker players from the stronger ones. Sam, who are the stronger ones who you think can make it through this, continue to play their employees if this thing drags on through the summer? Well, I, um, I mean, we're sort of taking the point of view that, that this is going to run through April. Um, but, I mean, look, I, I think that most people in my uh, coverage universe are, you know, are heavy in cash, so they're in pretty good shape. But, um, uh you know, but to the point that weaker players, um, you know, will have more trouble. If weaker players stay open and there's no customers, and, and I mean, it's the same difference as closing the stores. You might get a few people, but right. the risk of getting people sick and not having them, it doesn't, at this point, it, it just doesn't make a difference. So I agree that the weaker players are going to be the weaker players. And if weaker players are trying to get short-term sales and can't play, and the reason they're weaker is because they're, generally their brands don't hold up as well as others, you know, it's sort of like they're just doing what they've always done. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make them. It's not. It's 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 what got them here, and they're keeping right. keep doing it. Those people that make the appropriate changes are gonna are gonna are gonna survive better. Period. All right, guys. Thanks, Sam Poser and Mickey Chada, discussing the trouble for the retailers during this time. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining me today. And now for the very latest on the coronavirus pandemic, let's get to Sue Herrera. Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. As the CDC reports 75 total U.S. deaths from the coronavirus, up seven from yesterday's report, President Trump and his coronavirus task force are indeed updating Americans on what Mr. Trump calls a war against the outbreak. He wants the government to send checks to Americans in the next two weeks to ease the economic damage. The White House and Congress are working on an emergency rescue package that both parties say they want to pass quickly. London's mayor warning about the growing severity of the coronavirus pandemic and its impact on its citizens. This is Britain's finance minister has announced nearly $400 billion worth of loan guarantees for businesses. It is really, really, really bad. This could be catastrophic to our businesses. You'll be aware many of our businesses rely upon cash flow uh, from customers to pay wages of uh, staff. Uh, as it is, they're struggling. 
Here at home, Ohio has called off its presidential primary. They did it just hours before the polls were set to open. A decision the governor says is necessary to help prevent the spread of the virus. Meantime, in Florida, voting is underway, with poll workers cleaning voting booths and the counters regularly. Illinois also holding its primary, but turnout so far is said to be very light. You can get live updates anytime on the coronavirus outbreak. You can check out CNBC.com. Kel? Back to you. I'll okay. see you next hour. Sue, thanks very much. Sue Herrera for us. The states across the country are ordering restaurants and bars to shut down this to help contain the coronavirus. In New York, restrictions went into effect this morning, and that's where we find our own Contessa Brewer checking on things for us. Contessa, what are you learning? Hey, Kelly. Yeah, well, look, 15 states at least have ordered the shutdown of dine-in facilities. Restaurants can deliver. They can take out and here. In lower Manhattan, the signs are out saying they're open for delivery. But look, this is a neighborhood that is normally packed at lunchtime with Wall Street types. And today, especially, it's St. Patrick's Day. These places would normally be crowded all day long with revelers coming in to celebrate the holiday. Instead, the windows are boarded up. There's a sign here saying Dorland's will be closed for business until the mayor tells us it's safe to be open. I went across the street to a pizza restaurant that normally does a lot of takeout and delivery, right? The manager came out and talked to me with tears in his eyes. It hurts right now. It hurts because uh, um, we just had to let go all our uh, floor staff, you know, servers, bussers, everybody without a job today. And look, here's the thing. On this side of the street, you've got a wine store and, uh, and bar. You've got Jack's Coffee, which is open. People have been going in and out here to take out coffee. The ice cream store, how do they do delivery? And over here, Jeremy's Ale House is one of the most famous dive bars in New York City. It's been around for a long, long time. They've got signs up on the door now that says they're going to offer $4 quarts of Budweiser and Coors to go. That's one way that they're handling the business. One of the other things that the pizza manager told me is he said, if you can call the restaurants directly, it definitely avoids any fees for those uh, big companies that may still be charging for delivery. Kelly? That's a great point. If they can save that 30% right now, that's huge. All right, Contessa, thank you, Contessa Brewer. For more on how the outbreak is affecting restaurants, I'm joined by Madeline Alfano. She's vice chair of the California Restaurants Association and the owner of Maria's Italian Kitchen. That's a restaurant chain in Los Angeles. Uh, Madeline, I, as I understand it, my producer tells me your business just dropped 50% uh, as of yesterday. How bad is it? Overnight. Wow. Yes, overnight. So in, traditionally, um, we've, we've done 30 to 40% of our business has always been takeout and delivery with the, the remaining and dine-in. But overnight, it, it totally plummeted. And I think people are just fearful of ordering food from anywhere. And the fact that they've been hoarding food from the grocery stores, I think they have to use that, those perishables. Yeah. And um, one of the things I think the public needs to understand is that restaurants have provided over 50% of the food to the population. And now with this, uh, this shutdown uh, looming over us, it's, it's really a challenge. You know, there's and, a, um, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say there's a, a mixed messaging, and I want to know your thoughts about this. On the one hand, you have places... I think Italy might even be one case where they've shut down all the restaurants in our Contessa Brewery. You probably just heard New York. A lot of those restaurants close. On the other hand, the president just got up and said and, and Secretary Mnuchin said we want drive throughs to remain open. We encourage people to use restaurant apps for walk in and take out. 
What is California's policy on that? Well, currently, we're allowed to do takeout and delivery. Dine-in has been suspended. And like uh, the other person you had on the show earlier, yes, uh, what we've done with our servers and our bussers and our cashiers is we've afforded them the opportunity to to sign up to drive, to be delivery drivers. So that way we're trying to help all of our employees maintain their earning capacity. All of our our, uh, servers are food handlers. We all have food handler cards. So they're surf safe certified. They understand the, 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 they understand hygiene. One of the things I've done in the past several days is reach out to my banker. Uh, we have a small community bank, Mission Valley Bank, and I talked to them about what they're doing for their community to abate, you know, um, late charges for, for loan payments or even go to an interest only idea. Um, reach out to the State Board of Equalization. You know, we get penalties if we're late right now without income and without that cash flow. We're not going to be able to make those payments. And they're huge fines. Uh, another thing is our insurance companies, you know, workers' compensation, health insurance. We get penalties if we don't pay. And, and there's so much, there's such a challenge for cash flow right now that small businesses are really going to have a problem making these payments. And finally, we need the lawmakers. And there are two in California that I'm very proud to say from one from San Diego and one from San Francisco that are trying to put a bill in act. And the California Restaurant Association is calling it the Hibernation Act. Wow. which means the the commercial leases do not terminate leases, do not fine uh, restaurants for not being able to make those lease payments and perhaps even abate or forgive the rent mm-hmm. for at least a couple of months because without restaurants, the country will be at a huge loss. I mean, this is where everyone celebrates. They Not only do they get their regular meals, but it's a place where people come together to to share experiences. It's social. It's 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 nurturing. Yes. And at Maria's Italian Kitchen, we've been a home away from home for so many years. We've been in business for 40 years. And in all of my 40 years, I have never seen something like this. So, we've been through earthquakes, riots, fires, floods. This is really a challenge. And it's it's affecting so many people. Madeline, in fact, do you think um, you can stay open? And, and what would that look like in the, in the coming months? Like you said, you can reposition uh, some people, I love the idea about taking some of the wait staff, having them drive. Uh, in terms of that cash flow pressure, how long can you stay open like this? Well, what we're doing is since we have restaurants in, in close neighborhood proximity, so we've, uh, we've temporarily closed one of our Santa Monica locations and moved our staff to our Brentwood or our West Los Angeles location. That's for you uh, back east. It's about two and a half miles, three miles radius. And we're forwarding our phones to the other restaurants. Um, you know, we're going to start clustering the restaurants that are close in proximity. We're just going to have to move people around just to make it work. But I will tell you, there are many restaurants that I don't believe will be able to weather this storm. It is really it is huge and it's devastating. We need we need our government. Um, and I'm glad that the, the government came up today and said that we're, you know, unemployment insurance will be paid quickly. Yeah. We're handing out forms to all of our employees with uh, layoff instructions and how they can just click online to fill out their paperwork. And we're helping them with iPads. And it's it's really something uh, unlike anything we've seen before. And the California Restaurant Association is putting out a bulletin to all of our members just to help them. Madeline, thanks. And again, the Hibernation Act for people who want to support that would maybe help not terminate leases or fine you guys. Keep us posted. Good luck.
Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Uh, stocks are rallying today after President Trump and the Fed announced new measures to stabilize the economy. Madeline was just referring to some of those. The Treasury is planning to send checks to Americans during this crisis and the Fed launching more repo action. Can they hold off a recession? Joining me now on the CNBC Newsline is Michael Darda. He's the chief economist and market strategist at MCAM Partners. Mike, I'm so glad to have you here. We don't have a lot of time. I'm going to cut right to the chase. How bad is it and, and what can be done to forestall a really deep recession at this point? Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's pretty bad. As your previous guest just said, this is a huge shock. So, you know, avoiding a recession is probably going to be impossible now. And it looks like so far policymakers, both on the fiscal and monetary side, have simply been overwhelmed by this crisis, this tsunami that's hitting us. But they have to try and they have to do more. And the key now is what kind of recovery do we have on the other side of this thing? Because it does look like the downturn is going to be quite sharp. How sharp and how long? It's really impossible to know at this point. I mean, essentially, you have the economy coming to a sudden stop, not just here, but around the world. We don't have enough data yet to know what that actually means. But some of the numbers coming out of China are quite scary. So this could be in the trillions of dollars, very large. And so I know some of the announcements uh, seem imp impressive on the fiscal side based on sheer numbers. But relative to the shock that we might be getting here, uh, we could have a situation where they're simply inadequate at this juncture. So you think that, you know, and so far we've barely kind of bro broached the one trillion dollar. I mean, how many trillions are we talking? And and if not, you know, what could, what's going to happen to the markets? Well, as much and as long as it takes to fully recover from this, I mean, we do have a backdrop where it's almost free to borrow money. So, you know, so the numbers shouldn't scare us off. Number two, with respect to the Federal Reserve, you know, they are taking what appears to be aggressive action, but so far nothing doing on inflation expectations. If you watch the tips inflation break-even spread market, it, you have inflation expectations declining at the fastest rate of descent since the dark days of 2008. So basically, we need to, you know, to keep moving forward uh, until that starts to turn around. One thing that the Fed might consider in the future, you know, they're limited to, you know, what they can do bound by the Federal Reserve Act, but announcing some kind of a level path target for inflation, uh, I'd prefer nominal GDP, mm -hmm. but in, this was something that came up in the Fed, the Fed's listen um, discussions, but to basically commit to restoring output or inflation to where it would have been before this shock hits. That way, you know, if we're talking about asset purchases or even fiscal policy, markets need to know that policymakers will not stand down until the economy is fully vaulted out of this hole that we're likely falling into now. Yeah, and I can tell from the tone of your voice that we haven't gotten that message yet and we're not there yet. Mike, thanks. Hopefully you'll add some urgency to it. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Michael Darda joining me from MKM Partners. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. 
Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. 